This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, a COVID third wave is hitting Europe, but the U.S. might be in the clear or as clear as possible. Brookings Dr. Kavita Patel. This isn't going to be a pandemic we eliminate. We're just going to get to a level where we can treat and learn to deal with it. And financial literacy could be the key to breaking a global cycle of poverty. Two unlikely partners are betting on it. Operation Hope's John Bryant. Bye. Giving more education to everybody, irrespective of race. You deepen the bench strength, you strengthen America, you strengthen markets, you create more customers. And former SEC Chair Jay Clayton. With technology today, the cost of connecting people to the financial system is much lower. And the cost of providing education at the point of sale is much lower. Those stories, plus finally a word from GameStop leadership and money, money, money must be funny in Mike Santoli's world. Money never sleeps, pal. I check in. I have the feelers out all hours. It's Wednesday, March 24th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Mike Santoli. Andrew's off today. And Mike, we're glad to have you with us again. Thanks for being Good here. Good to see you, Becky. Good to see you. Let's check First up today on the podcast, Elon Musk making news overnight. Just after 3 a.m., he tweeted, you can now buy a Tesla with Bitcoin. In a separate tweet, Musk said Tesla is only using internal and open source software and operates Bitcoin nodes directly. Nodes are computers that work to verify transactions and prevent Bitcoin from being spent twice. It's not what I think about at 3 a.m. Musk also said Bitcoin paid to Tesla will be retained as Bitcoin, not converted to fiat currency like dollars. Maybe he's in Texas. Is that only an hour behind? So that would be 2 a.m. I'm not I don't know where he is. He lives there now, but he may be. We we don't know. Maybe he's in Texas. Maybe he's in California. So somewhere between midnight uh, and 3 a.m. And but with Elon Musk, does it really matter? He could be it could be any time. Geniuses. Uh, Mike, you, you're up yeah. any time, right? You well, basically could be awake I think he's at any on, time. Uh, so, he's on the, Mars Standard Time, anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. some, <laughs> some Bitcoin working time. all through, you know, through the as Earth if night. we should yeah. make fun of people for crazy hours, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wanted to bring up an oil board too. Things have been keying uh, off crude. Yesterday was rough, and then you can see the futures were weaker in the middle of the night and, and early morning. You know that plays into. Uh, you know, COVID reopening, yeah. global economy, all that stuff, right? Santoro, were you yeah, watching it? I, with... I said you were up. You're up monitoring because geniuses don't sleep, right? I, Money you know, never sleeps, pal. I, mm-hmm. I check in. Uh, I have the feelers out all hours. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was a matter of, uh, you know, it, it, it trades like a a play on global growth. It's a cyclical asset. It's a risk asset. It's a, you know, it's a risk appetite tell. So, I mean, all those things are uh, are in the mix. Yesterday was interesting because we did get that backing up of Treasury yields. And then there was a little bit of a slippage in the usual rotation. Big cap growth didn't rally as a single group. Um, and oil was going down as well. So it just it's like the market. One thing can be wrong. And, and we can kind of account for that and insulate the overall indexes from it. But in general, the market's flattened out a little bit over the last two months. You've had these rolling corrections. The Nasdaq 100 went down 12 percent high to low. Russell 2000 is now down almost 8 percent uh, from its high. And so it's not really getting at the at the broader S&P 500. But you're seeing a little bit of chop and you're seeing a little bit of payback from what was an amazing run coming into this year. You know, Becky, what, one thing I was surprised by. We'll get to your stuff, but I, I was just marveling at, I mean, other shows have Mike Santoni like booked in at a certain time. There's, there's his time at like 10 after the day. Mike Santoni's going to bring us his, and I'm not about senior, 
We can just, any random thought that we have, we can turn to him when he's <laughs> on this show and just say, Mike, what's here. going on? And just boom. What, and what that what means a, is you, a, you summon one of my random thoughts as opposed to something that's prepared and, you know. But what packaged. a resource. What a resource. What a, what a uh, you know, really good. Really good to, to be able to do that. Now, with that in mind, what, what were you saying, Zach? I, I was just going to say, I was surprised yesterday. I know we're going to talk about these comments from, from Powell and Yellen, but I was surprised, given how closely we parse every word, that there wasn't more concern in the, in the markets based on a few of the things they said concerning valuations. Yeah. In fact, I th- are you moving me along? You want me to, you want me to read this, I guess? That's, no, I that's actually a- do want to talk about this. I, okay. But, but I, I think it rolls into this conversation that we're having. Yes. I, there was the, the I'm one not trying to move you along. I'm just saying... No, I, I don't along. understand I'm, it. I'm Maybe you guys can explain. Well, I'm sure Mike can, and he's here again. He's right there. But uh, <laughs> the one other thing I was going to say, one other thing I was going to say was the oil could be in the squawk stack. That's an option for us. But when it yeah. moves intraday so much, that doesn't do it justice, you I don't think, it. when it's just, right. okay? All right. So these are all, yeah. these are all the kidneys. Uh, Fed Chair uh, Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen testified uh, before the Senate Banking Committee today, uh, yesterday, appearing before a House hearing, both told lawmakers they still expect a strong rebound this year as the vaccine rollout expands, economic activity picks up, uh, but the recovery is far from complete. They also agree that while valuations in parts of the market are high, that's no cause for alarm just yet. Some asset prices are a bit high. But the, the, the banking system is highly capitalized um, and uh, funding risk is, is relatively modest. The remainder is the, the remaining category is really leverage among households and businesses, which is somewhat elevated, but but uh, nothing like it was before the financial crisis. I mean, both of the people that we're referring to, Yellen and Powell, are great at what they do. Whether I would ever listen about valuations to either um, I'm going to go back to, to Santoli again. Um, you remember Janet Yellen's call on biotech yeah, before was, they like quintupled uh, when she said they I, I just yeah. those aren't the people that you I'd rather go to one you of our average think, guests know. during the day. Even a sell side average guest probably is just as I mean, I'd listen to them just as much. I just think when Jay Powell says it as the Fed chairman and he understands markets. I mean, when Jay Powell says that as the Fed chairman, I would just think it'd cause a little more concern. He, he's saying he's not concerned because the banking system's not going to collapse like it did back in 2008, 2009. That, he was talking about the but, banking system. Right. Actually, if anyone but can, can actually think, control stock prices and knows what he's talking about, whether they're going up or down, maybe it is him. Well, I mean, I think the way, I mean, the way he presented it was a relatively generic nod in the direction of the fact that, sure, you know, equity prices have come up a long way, uh, you know, whatever other asset you want to try to point to, because that's the tone of a lot of the questioning that he gets when he sits before Congress. Hmm. However, uh, if you were an investor, you'd say, OK, well, what would he do about it? He's absolutely not going to raise short-term interest rates for, right. he thinks, years to come. Maybe Although it's a little that, sooner. He's not going to raise margin Unless he doesn't care. If, well, all he's going to that, do that's what is going to allow out what he... longer-term yields to go up if that's the way the market wants to reprice. And he's going to let that happen unless and, and he's not going right. to do anything about it unless and until it creates some kind of financial uh, kind of tightening of conditions somewhere else besides just the nominal 10-year yield. 
but you you think I mean if you if the market comes down by ten or fifteen percent maybe that sets up and gets his attention. Yeah. But, well, but actually, I, guess I don't think the, I think right, the general sense is the Fed doesn't wouldn't elsewhere. mind if, if if stock they don't mind the stock prices have cooled off here a little bit because it allows them to stay very they say easy. That, but every time that's happened in the past, they've acted, and I guess that's my question that comes in: What would they do? We went down ten percent in September of last year. The VIX went up above thirty, and they did nothing. Uh, they just reiterated their stance. So, I mean, I think that, you know, we're in a, a realm where you could see some weakness in stocks and it's, it doesn't really come, uh, you know, with, with any kind of implications for Fed policy at this point anyway. The, uh, the realm. See, he pointed back to an exact example. I know. I, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. <laughs> My memory goes you, back exactly seven Get used months. to this. The, the realm. The realm. And, and to use, like, GOT, uh, you know, terms as well. And I can do cultural things with you, right? I can do that with you, even with uh, you can, Best you can in Show, yeah. the, the, the Starbucks. They met in a Starbucks, these two people. We, we did have that. Uh, but not yeah. in the same Starbucks. I came they up were, with that they were, It was yeah. catty corner. They saw each other on their, on their com- yeah. computer. Not a game. I, I know GOT yeah. is about Game of Thrones, but I, I, I'm not a Game of Thrones person, so I Why not? recused They're myself. Why not? Too, too uh, nudity, something, just, just uh, too uh, disturbed you know, your sensibilities, too violent? Made-up worlds, and, you know, it's not my thing. <laughs> oh, but the stock market's not a made-up. Okay. Barron's, this just covers reality. <laughs> All it. right. Sure. <laughs> okay. GameStop, the mall retailer turned darling of the Reddit rebellion, issued its first quarterly numbers since the rocket emoji-like rise of the stock in recent months. The thing about GameStop, Redditors talk about it constantly on the Wall Street Bets forum. We've reported on the skyrocketing stock. Congress looked into it in a House committee hearing. But the company itself has been mostly quiet in these last frenzied months. A few announcements about staffing changes, but not a word about the memes. If you've been listening to this podcast during this GameStop winter, we've tried to fill you in on this remarkable movement of independent investors harnessing the collective power of social media, using the visual language of GIFs and emojis, and impacting the stock market. Executive Ryan Cohen, co-founder of the pet retailer Chewy, invested in GameStop and joined the board late last year. He is a popular figure in the GME discussions. He tweets ice cream cones and movie gifts and has a successful track record in digital retail. He is leading an internal committee on GameStop's shift to e-commerce. So expectations for yesterday's earnings release and the following conference call, which was at max capacity nearly an hour before start time, were high. But GameStop reported earnings of $1.34 a share, short of estimates, and a healthy jump in e-commerce sales, a new COO who worked at Amazon and Google, and that was about it. No bold plan for digital reinvention was offered. No questions even were taken on the conference call. Let's get back to Mike Santoli. Joining us now to uh, talk about GameStop and, uh, and the markets in general, Stephanie Link, chief investment strategist at Hightower and a CNBC contributor. Good morning, uh, Steph. I mean, uh, GameStop, kind of a fascinating example of, um, you know, there's the phenomenon that is the stock. And then there's the business, which we got a glimpse at uh, last night. It was a moment when, it w- when the stock itself was sort of whipping around the rest of the market that maybe has calmed down. But how would you just view this as you try to reconcile what the stock's been up to with, with how the business is going and what maybe they have planned for it? Yeah, I mean, I think the the bright spot, you highlighted it in the quarter, was e-commerce, global e-commerce up 175 percent. And now e-commerce represents 34 percent of total revenue versus 12 percent last year. So they're headed in the right direction. They also closed 232 stores. 
but they still have 693 stores. Um, and on the negative side, you have gross margins fell 610 basis points. You had COVID hit their stores substantially, so they had a lot of closures. And then the elephant in the room is the secular headwinds. You ask any 10 to 15-year-old, they're downloading games, right? They're not going to these stores. So I think the big news is if they're considering the equity raise, they need it. It's prudent. It's very, very much so uh, needed and necessary because transitions take time. Turnarounds take time. I think they're making very good progress in terms of kind of management changes with the CFO leaving. And now they have a CMO that came from um, Amazon. We know what the co-founder of Chewy is doing and and, and really uh, leading the charge. So I think there are some positives in place. But all that said, Mike, it's the stock's up 864% right. year to date. And so it's going to take time. Yeah. I just, this is, you know, this is not my kind of name, but exactly, yeah. it is, you know, they're headed in the right direction, but we got to, we got to, we got to be patient. Yeah. Here. And I also think we have to just sort of set the, the framing of this as how it's valued right now uh, on a price to sales basis. GameStop is that four <laughs> times the valuation of Best Buy, which is not a company that has necessarily gotten blindsided by e-commerce, right? So, I mean, just, you know, how far the stock has come is, is a good reminder there. You said it's going to take time, and, and um, you, you understand, I guess, sort of the, the uh, possible bull case. I'm just wondering whether it, it's likely to, to play out, because they, they, they point out, okay, there's three Bs. They need to avoid Blockbuster. They need to avoid the fate of Borders. But maybe they try to embrace something like a Best Buy model. What Best Buy's done much better uh, than others. Somehow, I guess by service, and you go in and, you know, they'll help you. With, with, I thought Best Buy might go the same route, but they're not going to. They're doing, they're doing pretty well. But even if they were successfully to reach the Best Buy model, it's already gone from five bucks to 160. <laughs> what is the Best Buy model if oh, they're no. successful in getting there? What is that worth for GameStop? Is it worth... No. 200, 300, 400? Is it worth 160? I think Best Buy has done a great job in terms of turning around in the transition. And to your point on services uh, of being a real main focus, um, I actually worry about just in general about Best Buy. Can they keep the stuff on the shelves, right? Just given all the supply chain uh, disruptions that we're having. So near term, I think you might see a little bit of a blip on Best Buy. But, but to can, your point of yeah, can what is GameStop even get that GameStop? successful? Yeah, can it yeah. even get that successful right. in transitioning to an online? It's got unbelievable competition from big names to tr- that want to be in that business too. Why would it be GameStop? As yeah. talented as Ryan, well, uh, is. Ryan Chewy. You've got it. You've, yes, you've got it. You've got to bet on, on him. Right. And you got to bet on the Chewy.com model and the, how, how successful that has been in the face of Amazon. Right. So you have right. to bet on him. And that's why I, I mentioned they've made some good decisions in terms of bringing in the leadership. I mean, this CMO at Amazon that from Amazon that they just hired is really pretty impressive, too. So they got to get the people in. They got to get the cash in the door. So they've got to do the secondary. Right. So that they can make all of these changes. And to my point earlier, e-commerce at 34 percent of total revs. Actually, that's nothing to to, you know, that's that's something that I think is sort of kind of interesting because it was only 12 percent a year ago. So just think, I don't know if they're going to go Best Buy model. I actually think they're going to go Chewy.com model. And should they do that, we'll see how it plays out. But they need a lot of cash in the door to get that model in the right place. Right. And Chewy didn't start out with thousands of stores, too. So we have to always throw that out as well. <laughs> Steph, uh, great to see you. Thanks a lot this morning. Thanks, Mike. Next on Squawk Pod, Europe seeing a third wave of COVID cases. But NBC News contributor Dr. Kavita Patel says the U.S. might not be on the same track. 
the EU kind of did a, several things wrong, and it's a case study in what not to do. Number one, not enough supply secured in advance. And on top of that, rolling back restrictions. That's right after this. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Joe Kernan. The European Union is finalizing emergency legislation that would allow it uh, to curb vaccine exports for six weeks. That's according to the New York Times. And the move comes in response to supply shortages in Europe and a rising uh, third wave of COVID infections. Britain would face the biggest disruption, followed by Canada and Israel. Uh, between February and mid-March, the EU allowed uh, companies to export more than 40 million doses to 33 uh, countries, while 70 million doses stayed within the bloc. But politicians in Europe have been facing a backlash. Only 10% of its citizens have been vaccinated. And they let all those uh, vaccines go out. You know, it's a touchy uh, subject, but uh, you got 40% were vaccinated in the UK, nearly 60% in Israel. So these are, you know, no one's going to win with, with choices, but they need to be made. Joining us now, Dr. Kavita Patel, primary care physician, uh, Brookings Institution fellow, and an NBC News contributor. She formerly, formerly, formerly served uh, in the Obama administration. Dr. Patel, it's, uh, it's good to see you. I, you probably have been in positions where these tough choices, tough decisions, uh, I, I don't know what, what, how you would justify this, or, or is it totally justifiable? Uh, you've got to keep it at home. It almost sounds like a Europe first strategy, but if they're at 10 percent and they're exporting all that vaccine, as a citizen there, I think I'd, I would expect it to be uh, available to me first. Yeah, Joe, good morning. You're bringing up exactly the rub. I think that when these arrangements were made, by the way, it was very clear that the EU in particular put an incredible emphasis on AstraZeneca, just like the United States had tried to put some even bets on a number of their manufacturers. So in the case of the EU, AstraZeneca was something that they, of course, the other manufacturers are in there, but AZ was kind of the leading manufacturer with supply. Uh, and unfortunately, between the cases and the rising and an incredibly rocky vaccination rollout, Joe, you're just seeing exactly this rub. This has happened in other not as dire situations in the United States. It's why we actually led to developing a federal strategic national stockpile. Of course, you can't do that with COVID vaccines at this point in time. But I think what you're seeing the EU do is, frankly, they're watching even what the United States is doing with some of its arrangements to send out vaccine supply, but in promise of reciprocity that they'll get those doses back. That was only after the United States, Joe, had accomplished its goal of securing enough supply to at least vaccinate all adults by at that time, by the end of May, it now looks like it could be even sooner because we're doing 24-7 manufacturing. So this is a difficult situation, but I got to be honest, when you're looking at lockdowns, which is what they're doing in the EU, it makes sense to actually prioritize your country's needs first. In healthcare, Joe, we always say that you have to save yourself before you can save the patients around you. It's essentially how the EU is acting. Right. Put your oxygen mask on first on the plane and then help those. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's not not necessarily intuitive. So we want to avoid what's going on over there, uh, if, if at all possible. And I, did they did 
what do you attribute it to? The not enough people being vaccinated? Did they reopen too quickly? Were they did they really let their guard down a lot? Because if you look at what's going on in Miami Beach or, or other uh, things happening in, in the United States, it, it seems like it's possible that we could be in the same boat. Will we not be in the same boat because we, we have much higher or have done better with the vaccine rollout? Yeah, it's it's incredibly amazing for for us to talk about how the United States is really leading the way. But it has, frankly speaking, we're getting especially in the high priority populations, Joe, we're we're achieving above the age of 65. Almost all adults have at least had their first shot if it not if not the majority fully vaccinated and that's the driver for hospitalizations and deaths and you're seeing states like Texas Monday March 29th first state to open up eligibility to all adults doesn't mean it's easy to go get a shot for anybody on Monday but it means that we're really ramping up with three to four million shots a day and climbing. Where the EU went wrong, you're right, the EU kind of did uh, several things wrong, and it's a case study and what not to do. Number one, not enough supply secured in advance in terms of kind of spreading the probabilities of success across multiple manufacturers. We've done that with 12 and counting in the United States compared to the EU single-digit bets. And on top of that, rolling back restrictions, frankly, they're also finding some of what we see in our, our states, that people are just fatigued despite having a pretty even testing and tracing strategy in the beginning. Remember, Germany was a case we were touting as a success model. But despite any of that, people are fatigued and they're like, no, we're just going to travel. We're going to do what we need to. So, yes, it's a cautionary tale. The thing that makes it a little different also, Joe, is the variants. I think we saw the emergence of B117 and some other variants earlier in the EU. We're trying to heed that caution here in the United States, not working out as much as we would hope because we're starting to see cases plateauing. And just in the last uh, 72 hours, cases rising, especially in 12 states across the country here. Dr. Patel, that was going to be my my question is we think we're doing so much better and we definitely are on the vaccine front. But does this catch up with us at some point Does the variants start to spread here? And as we've got the same fatigue. Yeah, Becky, I'm not as you know, I, I know there are people who are talking about an incredible fourth surge or fourth wave. I do think we're going to see an increase in cases. Here's why the next six to eight weeks are going to be a little different than the EU. We have traditionally clockwork almost followed the EU three to four weeks after their trends. We are doing a much better job at vaccination. And Becky, to your point, I think that we're also having our own experience with homegrown variants, which do put a little bit of a boomerang. Manhattan alone has had the rise of a particular variant of concern, B1526, responsible in March for 40% of the new cases and climbing. When we start to see about 50% of new cases from one variant that can be more transmissible, which we think the Manhattan one is, that can be an exponential growth. So I think that what we're doing in terms of vaccination is actually helping us to not see the fourth wave, but we are going to see an increase in cases. We are going to see an increase in hospitalizations and deaths as a result. Yeah. And Becky, I think it's a reminder that this isn't going to be a pandemic we eliminate. We're just going to Doctor. get to a level where we can treat and learn to deal with it. Yeah. I just want to, we're running out of time. I wanted to ask you as a primary care physician, how much would you like to be able to, to prescribe a Pfizer protease inhibitor? Or, or how about the Regeneron uh, news? I mean, both of those things, we don't talk about them as much as vaccines, but could be game changers if there is another wave, if we could, if we could manage the, the outcomes in a much better way. Yeah. 
Yeah, Joe, I, huge. I've been using monoclonal antibodies in patients who are at risk for hospitalization. Regeneron's data yesterday, which will seek for their antibody cocktail to file for likely full approval, as well as a modification to their emergency authorization. Huge game changers, 70% reduction of hospitalizations and death for monoclonal antibodies. And I am very excited about a Pfizer oral drug in development, potentially a protease inhibitor. Very similar, what we're learning in COVID to HIV technology that could be an oral pill to treat COVID. And I couldn't be happier yeah. that we're watching therapeutics get their fair share as vaccines. Think about that, a pill. Um, because we worry about the future. And, and every time there's another wave, doctor, it increases the likelihood of, of a worse variant. Right. Because, you know, the That's virus right. needs to be able to to replicate. And it'd be better if it wasn't replicated. But if it does, then you got more variants. So if we had something right. that, oh, just take this every, you know, or a year from now, five years from now. Uh-oh, here it is. You know, we'll take this protease inhibitor. So we don't want to. Amazing. Yeah, we need, uh, we need to fund that stuff. Uh, Dr. Patel, thanks. Coming up on Squawk Pod, lifetime financial inclusion, how we could do it with John Hope Bryant and former chair of the SEC, Jay Clayton. If every child had a bank account from the, from the day they were born or when they're five years old, getting payments into people's hands so that they can use them would have been incredibly efficient. But at the same time, we would have grown up understanding what it's like to be connected to our financial system. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Mike Santoli in for Andrew. Financial inclusion, the idea of leveling the playing field when it comes to access to financial services, is not a new concept. But the coronavirus has made it more of a pressing issue than ever before. Additionally, the recent speculation in meme stops, stocks like GameStop, have put a spotlight on the need for more financial education. Two thought leaders we know quite well here have put their heads together and tried to come up with a plan of action. They write about it in the American Banker magazine. And joining us right now for more on this is John Hope Bryant. He's the founder, chairman and CEO of Operation Hope. Also, Jay Clayton, who's the former chairman of the SEC and the lead independent director at Apollo Global Management. He's also a CNBC contributor. And gentlemen, first of all, uh, welcome. How did you two get together? Who wants to tell the story? John, I'll, uh, I, want to, I want to compliment you. So uh, when I left the commission, uh, I was interested in continuing work in uh, financial inclusion. And I asked a mutual friend uh, to put me in contact with John because the work he's been doing over the years is uh, just exemplary. So uh, we connected and uh, we've, uh, we've had a great dialogue since, at least from my perspective. I love odd couples. Um, you know, you, 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 when you come from different perspectives, you tend to come up with a better product. Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass couldn't be more different, uh, but they put their heads together and came up with the Freedmen's Bank. Uh, and, you know, Dr. King and a range of other leaders have worked with people who are at a range of disparate views, but they had a common ground and a common interest. And, and Jay cares. And, and Jay cares and he's smart. And those are two great ingredients that I, and I think he has integrity. Those are ingredients I need for, uh, to, to create change in the world, which is what I'm trying to do. John, this is a problem we've, we've spoken about with you for, for some time now, but what's this new plan of action? Well, tomorrow is the last day for automatic deposit for stimulus checks. Um, and what are we going to do with it? If you, what we know is if you invest long-term, you're going to have more winners and losers. If you invest short-term, you're going to have more losers and winners. 
And uh, I, I just think that, you know, you can't get off, Jay and I are talking about this, you can't, you can't go to a, a, car, a car dealership and leave the, car to, leave the dealership to buying a car without having proof of insurance and proof of a driver's license. And if you have insurance education uh, or driver education as a young person, you get a, a, a better rate. I think that the market should look at African-Americans, as an example, as an opportunity uh, to expand uh, if we treat them right and prepare them because half of black folks are invested in comparison to whites. 30% of white of blacks are invested. 60% plus of whites are invested in the market. Um, and for every $100 of white wealth, you have a $13 of black wealth. It's, it's morals and money. You can do well and do good. But I think by giving more education to everybody, irrespective of race, I was just giving that one example, you deepen the bench strength, you strengthen America, you strengthen markets, you create more customers who trust you. And I think it's good for everybody. And that's the opposite of gamification. How does it work from a practical standpoint? Well, that's, where, that's, that's a great question, because that's where I was going. With technology today, the cost of connecting people to the financial system is much lower. And the cost of providing education at the point of sale is much lower. We ought to be using the power of technology to enhance these things. Uh, look, at, look at the CARES Act, the distribution of checks that, that John mentioned. Uh, if every child had a bank account from the, from the day they were born or when they're five years old, getting checks out, getting, actually, we won't have checks anymore. Getting payments into people's hands so that they can use them would have been incredibly efficient. But at the same time, you would have grown up understanding what it's like to be connected to our financial system. If you're not connected to our financial system, you're starting behind. And if, and if you're not educated in how you're connected, you're going to make worse decisions, which the poor outcomes amplify over time. We know all that. Let's use technology to address that. Jay, just as a former regulator, would you also use regulatory powers to, to enforce this as well? Or is this something that you try and convince people to, to go along with or companies to go along with? I, I think it's some of both, Becky. Right? We, we enhance the regulation uh, that's applicable to broker-dealers in my time at the SEC. And the, the staff did an incredible job looking at, looking at that transaction between a broker and their customer and adding protections around it. But as, as John mentioned, this is good business. Providing, providing high-quality education that's accessible and not a big friction, it's a good thing. People want to do it. Well, also, Becky, uh, and we can make this painless for folks, as you know, Operation Hope and other organizations like the National Urban League and others do really robust, elegant financial education. The FDIC has tools. The, t uh, the financial education tools are everywhere, and increasingly they're digitized and you can plug them right in and embed them into your business model without slowing the train one iota. We actually think this is a, a positive thing for business. But with regard to regulation, I think the message is sort of this. When you're being run out of town, get in front of the crowd and make like a parade. I mean, to think that there's not going to be additional regulatory pressure, some of which is useful and some of which may not be, I think is uh, naive. And so it, uh, I think that what the, the smart part players are do, should do is to get out ahead of this and say, look, we have no problem with additional education. We have no problem with reasonable disclosure. This has been, this is, you know, we are honest players and we think this is good for the marketplace. I think that's most players. I think most players are honest and have integrity. They should do this voluntarily because it's just good for everybody. It just takes a little bit of intentionality John. and we can help them do it in a way that's painless. John, I mean, you know I'm sitting right here, right? I mean, I know you know I'm sitting right here, and you just talk. 
So what do you need? FGI, first, uh, first generation investors, they haven't asked you for any money. All they want is your help. Why would you not bring that up now? Uh, that, that I, think on, I think I'm on their advisory board, Joe. <clears throat> well, let's go and bring that up. And, and I, I mean, is, is it on your website? Jay, I don't know if you know about this, but what they're in like 10, 12, 15 colleges now go out and, and help kids set up accounts and learn how to, you know, learn that, that stocks are a bunch of greedy capitalists and it, it can actually work. But I just thought you might mention it, John. You know, you're on here all the time and just. Just the smallest Becky, little the record, bone, like the little bone, FGI. Becky, for the record, I want everybody to understand that Joe and I are actually agreeing, for the record, uh, Joe is actually We're advocating. We're in business. <laughs> we have a nonprofit. Advocating. You have a nonprofit with my... Promoting. So, yeah, his, he's, he's promoting uh, uh, invest, uh, this, uh, this first-generation investment. But, by the way, there are thousands of these groups. This is the point. There are literally thousands of these groups all across America that could be embraced and be helpful to uh, any company that wants to embed financial education and investor education to what they do. We've done this in banking, it's being done in the workplace, and we believe it should be done on Wall Street for the largest and most responsible economy on the planet, the United States of America. We, everybody else is following our lead. We are the beacon of freedom and opportunity, and we should illustrate that and underscore that by living our values. And financial education should not be something we should have to convince folks to do. Hey, Jay, before we let you go, I want to ask you about Apollo. You were named uh, lead director there last month. And, and just this week, we, le we learned that Leon Black is stepping down now. That was earlier, I think, than a lot of us were assuming. You're now going to be um, the chairman of the board, non-executive non, um, chairman of the board. Is that timeline expedited from your perspective? Um, look, the, the founders, uh, when I went on board, they, they committed to a transformation in corporate governance. And uh, that's ongoing. I will tell you that in my brief time there, the talent across the board, you know, of course you have Josh and Mark and Leon who, who started this incredible company, but the, uh, the bench strength is, uh, I knew it was strong. I didn't know how strong it was. So I'm excited to be part of that. And I'm excited to, uh, to have a governance model there that aligns interest with shareholders. Okay, Jay, John, I want to thank you guys both for being with us. We appreciate your time today. Thanks, Becky. And even Joe. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Hey, thanks to Mike Santoli for sitting in the last two days. Geniuses don't sleep. To get the smartest takes and analysis from the Squawk Box TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating or write a review on Apple Podcasts to tell us what you think. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. 